Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Amen. First Peter chapter number one, we're going to start with verse number 13 and read a few verses and then we'll uh, get into this here tonight. First Peter one and verse number 13, I'll read down to verse 16 uh, to get started here tonight. Wherefore, and uh, we'll look at that here in a little bit, but if you remember anything from last week, it's basically saying because of all of that, all right? Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen. Tonight. I'm going to teach this as a subject, as a title for this third part tonight. Live like he's, and I'm speaking of God, live like he's your father, your judge, and your savior. Live like he's your father, judge, and savior. Amen. Go to the Lord in prayer here. Lord Jesus, we need you this evening. Pray, oh Lord, you're able to touch our minds and our hearts, God. Help us, Lord, to focus upon you. God, let all the distractions, oh Lord, of today, God, Lord, be laid aside, God, so we can focus our attention upon your word. I pray, oh Lord Jesus, let that word, Lord, speak into our individual lives and to us collectively here this evening. I know, God, that you're able to help us, Lord God, by the word. God, I need it in my life, and we need it in the life of this congregation the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. So kind of recap, coming up to this verse number 13 of the wherefore. If you'll remember, last week we were begotten again, the Bible said. We were begotten again and we were begotten into a living hope. And that hope was living because it is tied to a living God. And there is then reserved for us as the church, as the elect, there is reserved an incorruptible, undefiled heaven that is reserved for us as long as we continue on this path that our feet has been set on uh, to start. As long as we continue on a path that will complete our salvation the saving of this body someday uh, being that we are on this heaven destined journey if we could call it that that does not mean though according to last week that we are exempt from trials tribulation sorrow heartache amen it doesn't mean that we're exempt from those things but it also doesn't mean that those trials necessarily have to extinguish our joy those trials don't necessarily have to stamp out all of the thrill of living for the Lord either. But as a matter of fact, our new birth experience seems to invite both the trial and the joy because of our new birth experience. And yet, according to last week, we love the Lord and we believe in the Lord, though none of us has never seen him at any time, but we love and believe in him because he's the one that's going to bring all things to completion in our lives he's the one that's going to bring that salvation to completion in our lives receiving the gift of the holy ghost is excellent but we have a salvation still yet the saving of these bodies a rapture uh, to take place that he'll bring to completion and the amazing thing is this from last week is that the prophets spoke of him and we have received him they prophesied about him but we have the privilege of receiving him and the same spirit that inspired the prophets to speak what they spoke uh, has come then in Peter's day and the apostles' day, allowed them then to preach the message of the death, burial, and the resurrection. And so what the prophets sought after and even what angels desired to look into, you and I have. You and I have received. And so Peter is writing here and he's told us all of that and he comes to verse 13 and he says, 
Wherefore, which basically means for this reason, because of everything that has just been stated, being begotten again and loving the Lord and being born to a lively hope and having a heaven that is reserved. For all of that cause, uh, the Bible states to us in verse 13 that we hope to the end. That wherefore looks back on everything that has been previously mentioned. It's because of all of that that we can hope unto the end. And so there are within the book of 1 Peter, there are all kinds of imperative statements. Let's go back to English class. I mean, you've been removed from English for some time. But if you go back to English, if you remember, imperative statements are what they called understood you statements. If I was looking over here toward Mike Pinnerod and I said, go to the store and get bread, he would understand that meant me. It's an understood you statement. And so we have several of those in the Scripture, which shows an urgency, shows an intensity that something needs to be uh, taken place, something needs to be accomplished. There's about one imperative statement every three verses. And so whenever we start reading verses 13 through 17, we start seeing that stuff like you hope to the end. It's talking about hope to the end. It's understood. It's talking about us. We hope to the end. You gird up your loins. You be sober. It's just saying gird up your loins and be sober, but we're understanding that's talking to us. So they're understood you statements. And so we, we have a hope. We're to hope to the end. We have a hope, and the hope that we have isn't just a wish. I know some people say, well, you know, I hope it, I hope it don't rain tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's a wish. That's a desire. Uh, I don't know if I can give you any promises on that, but, you know, that's a wish or a desire. But when we talk about the hope that we have in God, it is a firm expectation. It's not just wishing. It's not just chancing. It is a firm expectation that what has been promised is going to come about. See, we're hoping to a promised end that's been ended. And so our hope is not founded on a wish. It's not founded upon a maybe it will, maybe it won't. We are expecting. We are expecting it to come about just as he said it would come about. And so that's the type of hope we have as Christians. Notice what the Bible says in Romans 8. And verse number 22, and I'm going to read down to verse 25, if you will, when you're thinking about this hope that we have as Christians. Paul said, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. What is that? The Holy Ghost. First fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body because the full redemption of these earthly bodies don't take place till rapture day. So, so there, is, there is a longing, there's anticipation in the spirit that we receive. You know, some of the, the, uh, the old timers, the elders say, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Huh? Uh, whether, some of them, it's whether by rapture or by grave. They're okay with the fact, either what you ever come to, they, there's a groaning, there's an anticipation. Verse 24 says, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Paul said we are saved by hope, because what hope causes us to do what hope causes us to do is to wait and anticipate for the unseen to become the seen. The unseen to become the seen. It causes us to expect, expect, that's our hope, not a wish, but it causes us to expect what? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes us to expect that there will be a trump of God that will sound. And those that are dead will come out of their graves. And those that are alive will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. It causes us to have an expectation. As the Bible says in verse 13, we're having this hope until the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is again referring to uh, the rapture of the church, or even the second coming, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way that we hope, Here's where we get into the scripture, verse 13. The way that we hope and how we accomplish our hope, he tells us in those first few little phrases, we must gird up our loins and we must be sober. That's how we can maintain hope till the end. Girding up our loins of our mind, that is, and being sober. Now, when we talked about girding up the loins of your mind, Brother McGee, my mind don't have any loins. <laughs> 
When's the last time you went to IGA and got a mind-lowing to put on the grill? Uh, but what it's referring to, it's doing an analogy for us. Uh, in Bible times, whenever a person literally gird up their loins, not the loins of their mind, but gird up their loins, they wore those, of course, long flowing robes. And if they were in haste and wanted to move very quickly, they would take the ends of those robes, sometimes tie them together in knots or any. Sometimes they would take the back part, flip it around, and tuck it into the belt or the little sash that they had around their waist so that they could move freely. That allowed them to move freely without being inhibited in their work or even in walking. So it allowed them to be able to do something quickly and freely. And so whenever the apostle says, you, if you want to be able to hope to the end and have that type of expectation to the end, you're going to have to gird up the loins of your mind. You have to gird up the loins of your mind. Because how many know that our mind and the thoughts of our mind sometimes can hinder our work and our walk? Woo! My, my. As a matter of fact, if there's something that's for sure going to get us down... Uh, in the end, it all starts right here. One of the, the, the books that have been written about the battle of the mind, your thought processes. He says, if you're, if you're going to hope till the end, if you're going to maintain that, you're going to have to gird up the loins of your mind. You're going to have to tie all these thoughts together. You're going to take some of the distractions and push them over there so it doesn't hinder your walk and hinder your work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we can get all those things tied together or, or tucked away that, that, that restrict us, that trip us in our thought processes, uh, we'll be better off keeping our hope maintained until the end. What, look what the Bible says. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, many of you know this verse of Scripture. He said, because he talks about how the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He says in verse number 5, casting down imaginations. It has to do up here in your head. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Here we go. Bringing into captivity. We need to tie some things up, don't we? Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So if we're going to maintain, uh, we've been begotten again, heaven is reserved for us. If we're going to maintain hope to the end, till the rapture, till Jesus Christ comes, then we're going to have to get our thoughts where our thoughts need to be. We're going to have to get our thoughts focused where they need to be thought. Folks, just even today, I've had, I've had so many different things go through my mind. <laughs> I'm telling you, we, I, I've, had, I've had quotes for the back back here today. I've had people for out here tell me what needs to be done around the building for all the water today. I got my own personal issues with my vehicle and junks going on. And... Uh, I had to tell God while I was praying in the prayer room, Lord, help me get my focus here before Sunday, for Wednesday night church. Because you just got to get thoughts sometimes and you just got to tie them together because they will hinder your walk. They'll hinder your worship. They will. And it can just be just, it, it could be work, work sometimes, thoughts about work. Fred says, uh, amen. Thoughts about work. About what you left undone whenever you left and what need, you should really be there right now trying to get it done. Hear me? It, they, they will come in and they will hinder you. It will. You can be here and not here. Just through your mind. Amen. And so he says, you, you got you to gird up the loins of your mind. Amen. And then he says, you got to be sober. If you're going to keep the hope to the end, you got to be sober. Someone says, I have no problem. I'm not drinking, Pastor. <laughs> Amen. But sober, sobriety, if you will, and it might seem odd to talk about that, was something that Peter said is going to help us keep our hope intact until the end. Because let's think for a moment, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, that would cause a person to not be sober. What happens when someone isn't sober? Irrational thinking. Right back here, right? Irrational thinking. Matter of fact, things people, things that, that people have done while they've been intoxicated, right? Sometimes by drugs and alcohol. If they were not under the influence, they would have never done. He says, you, you, you got to be sober. He says, you got to be sober in order to keep your hope intact to the end. In other words, you, there's only, if you want to be intoxicated on something, there's only one thing you want, need to be intoxicated with, and then it is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> It's really kind of figurative, I know, whenever he's talking about this intoxication, but the fact of the matter is this. There are things outside the scope of God 
and godly things that we may seek out and they may intoxicate us. Hmm. There can be things outside of the scope of God and godly things that may intoxicate us. But if any of those things deter us from keeping the hope until the end of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need that intoxicant in your life. Amen. Uh, there's examples all around us tonight. And for generations there have been of people intoxicated with things that have done nothing more but blinded them from the important things. Everybody all right? Sometimes relationships have intoxicated people. Amen. I've spoken to people, even that have attended this church sometimes, that should be here more than what they are, but they're intoxicated by relationships rather than this relationship. And what that is doing is tripping up their hope concerning their expected end. Amen. You can be intoxicated by things, literal things, your house, your car, money. All these other things can serve as in, intoxicating agents, if you will. Amen. To cause you not to think rationally concerning the things of God. Amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with what? The Spirit. Paul's not addressing in this context a social matter. He's addressing a theological matter, really. Amen. He sets a contrast up for us right here. Because in the Greek culture of that day, in that era, much of the religions... Amen. They had all kinds of lewd things going in, involved. There was immorality going involved. But a lot of times accompanying all the immorality and the lewdness of these quote-unquote religions, guess what, was drunkenness. They thought if they could get some drugs or get in these drunken frenzies, they would have some religious quote-unquote experience. And so they were getting involved in all these things, thought they was going to enter some unparalleled realm of whatever, pink elephants. <laughs> And so Paul's addressing this, and he says, I know that you're thinking that it's through drunkenness or some type of intoxication that you'll have a religious experience. You'll have some exhilaration and ecstasy, if you will, with the gods. He said, but I'm telling you, you just need to stay clear from that stuff, and you need to be intoxicated and filled with the Spirit. That's where it is. He said, don't let anything else control you. Don't let anything else control you. That's what field means. Amen. Don't let anything else control you, but be controlled by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. And not only that, the verb there means that don't just, don't just be controlled by the Spirit of the Lord, but keep on being controlled. Boy, there's, there's a good runway to be, stay on. Don't just be controlled once when you first came to the Lord and you got baptized, built the Holy Ghost. Oh, he controlled. No, no, no. Let yourself be continuously controlled by the Spirit of the Lord. That will help you keep your hope of an expected promised end. But another way, another way that we keep our hope firm unto the end, all right, look at it now in verse number 14. So we're girding up our loins. We're getting our, mind, our thought processes. We're not allowing other things outside of the scope of God and godly things to intoxicate us, to deter us. But he says also, not fashioning ourselves according to the, note the word here, former. Everybody say former. Not fashioning ourselves according to our former lusts. It's just a fancy word for desires or wants. Former. Because remember, what have we already learned? We have been begotten again. Hmm? We've been begotten again. We've had a new birth. We've taken off the old man. We put on the new man. We are, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Why would a new person want to fashion themselves to the former way. That's a good place to clap right there. Why would a new birth, new creature experience want to fashion ourselves to the former wants and the former desires? Because here, here's, this is important, so here we go. Live like he's your father. Look at it now. Our new birth experience made you and I children of the heavenly father. Oh, we're going to have fun here tonight. Our new birth experience made you children. We're children of God. We're children of our Heavenly Father. And it is that father-son, father-daughter, parent-child relationship 
Everybody doing all right? That can help us, look at verse 14, as obedient children. Huh? As obedient children that trust our Father knows best. Oh, boy. That rain might start falling right now. I have to get the hip waders out the way through this right now. That our Father knows best. Here, let me tack this on just for good measure. Even when we don't agree with Him. Woo! Your new birth experience put you in a parent-child relationship with God. There is not one single parent in here that would by any means take any lip from any of your children. I'm telling you right now. If you told them to do something, you plan, you expect them to do it. Why? Because you're the parent. They're the child. They're not of a mature enough age yet to make decisions about that. Oh, God. Is everybody? <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Amen? In the first century, during the first century in the Greek world, Parents, obedience to parents, and it should be highly regarded anytime, but history tells us that obedience to parents was very highly valued. So Peter was really relating to the culture of his day because they really valued that parent-child obedience, that, that, that child-parent obedience thing. And so whenever he's making this switch about how they are just newborn in the kingdom of God and that God is their, is their parent and that they should, as obedient children, not fashion themselves to the former wants and desires. Someone say Amen. So Peter's writing very plain for his generation, but I think we all understand it for our generation as well, don't we? Because here's the fact. Obedient children don't fashion themselves according to the former lust in their ignorance. Number one, because once you come to know the Lord and you start to learn things about God, things that you were ignorant on and that you did, now you have an awareness of. There's some right and wrongs as a child even grows. What? Their knowledge of what is right and wrong grows. Right? So when we come to know the Lord, there might have been a lot of things we did in our past. We didn't know that that wasn't pleasing to God per se. But when we come to the Lord, we learn more about God. We have more knowledge about God. Guess what? We know. So now we're not fashioning to something that we're ignorant about. We're fashioning something to something that we have full knowledge about what we're doing. It's like the kid that's just about ready to do something. They know it's wrong. They're staring at their parent, pushing the envelope, just like, try me. Huh? (laughs) We have that as Christians serving the Lord. It's like, I know it's wrong, God, but just dare me. Someone say amen. Here's the thing. They're aware now. They're aware that there are certain things that are wrong. There are certain things that are not beneficial, might I say it like that, to their new life that they're living for the Lord that's not beneficial to maintaining that hope that is expected, that promise is to come of the redemption of their body, of the salvation of them completely. Because why? Because if I do this, that could tamper with my hope. So when we understand this then, to keep the hope, girding up the mind, Christian, our Christian life is not just, just not a product of thinking right. It's the product of doing right. Not just thinking right, but doing right. But here's the good news. You can't do it by yourself. All right? Can't do it by yourself. I mean, it would be great if they came out of the womb and there's just this innate desire for them to do everything that they should do. But it's not there. It takes teaching. It takes instruction from a parent. So they can't do it by themselves, but they can respond as a child to a parent when the parent asks them something that they know is right. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, you know, clean up your room. You need to keep your room straight, all right? So, well, they wouldn't just do that by themselves, but since I asked or required of that, then that causes them to do something that they couldn't just do by themselves because, you know, they just thought everybody's room should look like a pigsty. 
Uh oh, Sister Jessup about ready to get up. Hallelujah. <laughs> so they can't do it by themselves, but we respond as children to a parent that asks us something, something to do. Therefore, we're controlled by our thoughts and our actions. And our actions and our thoughts, look, are really, really attributes of an obedient child. Now, how does the room get clean? Because mom asked me to do it, and I obeyed her, and thus it was done. How do you live a life that's pleasing to the Lord? He asked you to do something because your child's still yet immature, and you don't know all the ins and outs. But if you'll trust that he knows best and do what he asks, you'll fulfill the hope of the expected end. Romans 12, verse 2, that's what Paul says. He says, be not conformed to this world. Not fashioning to your former lust, okay? But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as obedient children unto God, living like he's our father and he is, as obedient children of God, we refuse to be conformed to the world. We refuse to fashion ourselves to the former life that we have. But on the other side of the coin, we embrace being transformed, amen, by having a different mindset, and our mindset will affect our behavior. So rather than following the old desires that we used to follow, all right, because now, now, God has called us. God has saved us. He is our Father. And so the Scripture says, He is holy. We should be holy. In all, everybody say all, manner of conversation. Again, many times in the epistles, you can almost put always there. Anytime the word conversation is used, it's not talking about your talk. It's saying, well, be holy in, in all your talk. That's not what conversation in the Greek is in all manner of your life, all manner of your lifestyle. So this is not a, you know, be holy in this and choose and pick a la carte type thing. No, it's all manner, attitude and attire. And we got, we got sometimes this going on. People get the, the attire right, and they are horrible with their attitude. They think they are the holiest thing that ever walked in shoe leather, and they got the attire right, but their attitude could say quite differently concerning holiness. And then there's others that have a supreme, ultimate attitude, and they struggle then with the attire. But all manner is all lifestyle, all conduct, every single area, no facet overlooked. Holy in all manner of life. John G. Butler said it like this. All, this says, no area of our conduct is exempt from the call to holiness. Be holy at work as well as worship. Be holy before the minister as well as before others. Be holy in music as well as in the message. Be holy in private as well as in public. Be holy in thoughts as well as deeds. Be holy in motivations as well in manners. What? Be holy in all manners of our life. And so then the question comes, right? Why should I be holy? Peter answers in verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. Now, this is a statement. That statement, be ye holy for I am holy, is a statement that Peter is borrowing from the Old Testament. He's borrowing, borrowing from the the. the, the book of Leviticus where it's found oft times. I know at least five times I, I denoted the phrase be holy for I am holy in the book of Leviticus. Amen. And so this is something then uh, that Moses had even shared with the children of Israel that the Lord said be holy for I am holy. Look at this particular instance in Leviticus. Leviticus 20 and verse number 26. The Bible states this word, these words and ye shall be holy unto me God is saying for I am the Lord I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you from other people. Now, that's, that's pretty straightforward language. Has severed you from other people that ye should be mine. When we consider this, the starting point then for the nation of Israel, the real starting point for her that mirrors the starting point for being the church, both of them, 
are both a call to holiness because holiness is the sanctifying, the separation, the come out from among them and be separate. That is the first call for the old Israel, and that is the first call of the church. The first call is to come out from among them. So in the Old Testament, God is constantly reminding them Look, if you read those in Leviticus, if you, if you look at, go home and look it up tonight, all those times God has reminded them, whenever he says, be ye holy for I am holy, you'll constantly see him saying, I am the Lord thy God. I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of Egypt. What's the word Lord? That's master. I am the master. I am the master. Be ye holy for I am holy. I am the master. Be ye holy for I am holy. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of Egypt. But in the New Testament, Peter's not leaning on the master-servant relationship. Peter is leaning on the parent-child relationship huh he says you do this because i'm master and you're what servant in the new testament he says i'm father and your son i'm parent and your child and so be ye holy because i am holy look at hebrews 12 these are good verses of scripture look at hebrew they're all good i don't want well, there's some scriptures ain't so high you know but these are good no, they're all good hebrews 12 and verse number nine furthermore this is good we have had fathers of our flesh, your natural father, all right, which corrected us. If you didn't have that, I wish you did. And we gave them reverence or honor. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits? Huh? And live. Verse 10. For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure. Again, it's talking about your natural fathers. They chastened you. They disciplined you. But he, again, speaking of God, but he for our prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. That's whether natural or supernatural. <laughs> no chastening of the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, Afterward, it, the chastening, yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, those who are chastened are going to have fruit of righteousness whenever they experience the chastening of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. And we did this a few weeks ago. I don't know if it was on a Wednesday or a Sunday morning. But remember, righteousness is this. In the Greek text, it basically means this. The condition acceptable to God. So what it's saying is, if we are chastened, it will produce fruit in our life, fruit that is making us into a condition that is acceptable unto God. Someone say amen. Thank God for our Father that chastens and disciplines us, that asks and requires certain things of us. Because when we follow through with obedience, it's just making our condition more acceptable. No one wants to go to heaven, do they? More acceptable unto God. Whenever, whenever our kids was asked to do something they didn't understand or that they were reluctant to do, sometimes it's not that they just don't understand, they just are reluctant to do it. And so whenever they were asked that, many times we would get this. Why? Oh, the blessed why. You know, I'd really like for you to do such and such. Whether they didn't understand or, again, they were just reluctant. It was, why? And you know what usually happens with the whys? If you start to explain, after you get done explaining, the next thing is going to be, why? And you are on this long little road of every, the each phrase you say, they're going to say, well, why? But why? But why? But why? And so you're on this constant explanation why, 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 why? When we've given the explanation, they just didn't really understand or they just didn't really want to do. And you know what the game of why, why, why does? It delays them from having to do it. It delays them having to do it. I find it in, in, the, the, in the dynamics of the church all the time. You give good explanation and the thing is, well, why? And so you explain some more. Well, why? Sometimes it's not that they don't understand. It's just they just if they can keep the whys up, then they will delay the having to do part. 
<laughs> Amen. But somewhere along the way, I don't know if anybody else has stood in these shoes, but somewhere along the way in those type of conditions, and you have that discussion of parent with child, why, why, why? I have reached the end of the road, and I pull out the big guns, and I say, because I said so, because I'm your father, because I'm your mother, what are we doing in that moment? We're exercising our parental authority over our child. That in saying that, we're saying, listen, kid, I guess you're never going to get it. Just trust that I know better than you know, and this just needs to be done. This is how it needs to be done. And whether or not you know the why right now, someone hearing me? Just do as I ask or do as I say. You might not understand. I've given you all kinds of answers to your whys right now. But even if you don't know why right now, one of these days you'll look back over your shoulders, you'll understand why I said do it like that, and you'll be thankful that you followed through. I'm trying to tell somebody tonight as a pastor, let God be your father, and even when you don't understand, just trust the father has your best in mind. He knows what he's doing, and one of these days you'll look back and say, God, I'm real glad. I'm glad I listened to you. That's the way it should have been done. I'm glad I was just an obedient child leaning on you, Lord. Amen. So be holy. That's an imperative. That, that's a command. And it should be well enough. Why? Because our Heavenly Father has stated it. And we're His children. And children don't know best. Normally, their parents do. Whew. Someone see, man. All right. So live. Live like he's your father. And if that's the case, that means we're obedient to him as a father. Yeah. And as with anything, that means in times when we are rebellious to the father, discipline and chastening comes for our own good. And in him doing that, he's just trying to help us with the condition that's acceptable to him, trying to produce fruit. Anytime my dad disciplined me, I guarantee it was because I did something wrong, stupid, rebellious, probably more so rebellious than anything else. What was the discipline for? To try to stick me back in the correct direction of what he asked me to do to begin with. Did I understand it all the time? Probably more times than what I'd give. Hmm? Probably more times than what I would admit. See, some of y'all don't know me. I was the person that got whipped for doing it, being rebellious, and go right back and be rebellious again. You're looking at the boy that it wasn't ten whippings was nothing in a series of whippings because I was that thick-headed. And now God's given me lambs like that to pastor sometimes, and it's <laughs> what you sow you will reap in different areas sometimes. But just as he was patient with me, I'm going to be patient with you, and we'll chase it in one of these days. You're going to turn out to be a good young man or lady. Amen. We're going to take those goats and make them lambs, I'm telling you. Look at verse number 17, First Peter. Let me read down to verse 21. I need to trudge along here. So be holy, for I am holy. Live like he's your father. Now look, 17. And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, same conversation as above, lifestyle, received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father, ooh, if you call on the Father, he says, if you skip down to the last phrase there, if you call on the Father, pass the time of your sojourning. Past the little bit of time that you're here. Remember, we're strangers and pilgrims, right? 
We're in this culture, but we're really not of this culture. Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. So the word fear there just basically means this reverence. If you call him the father, if you call him father, if you're saying he's the parent and you're the child, then pass your time here upon the earth in reverence of him. Hmm? The, the first commandment with promise in the Old Testament, and new for that matter, is honor thy mother and thy father. Hmm? It's the first commandment with promise that your days would be long upon the earth. First commandment with promise. He says, so if you call on the father, if you call on him as father, then let your life be lived in reverence to the father. All right? If you call on the father, reverence him as father, be obedient to him as a father. Because what happens? We get, we're begotten again. We get new life, but from, with new life comes new responsibility. Huh? And, probably, and they're, they're out there. I I'm probably was one of them, but every smart mouth kid is told an authority figure. Whenever they come to say, no, son, I don't think you should be doing that. You're not my dad. Huh? <laughs> I'm the only one. You're not my dad. You're not my mom. You know what they're saying in that moment? They're saying, I don't have to listen to you because you are not my parent. Right? That's really what they're saying. I don't have to listen to you because you're not my parent. So does that mean if their parents said it, they would listen? But that's, that's what they're meaning in that moment, right? You're not my dad. You're not my Oh, God, see, I just put you right in that one. Huh? <laughs> so if you call on the Father, look at it in verse 17. This is important. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth. Everybody say judgeth. Here's some, if you call on the Father, then you need to recognize he's not only your Father, he's your judge. Now, think with me. Gird your loins of your mind up. Think with me. That is a good reason to be obedient then to your father because whatever your father's command is will be the standard by which the judge is going to judge you by. Yeah. So if you're being obedient to father, you're already getting in good standing with the judge. Now that, now that, you can't get much better than that. Amen. Amen. And so, yes, I need to reverence him in my time here upon the earth. I need to reverence him. I need to reverence him as being my father. But I also need to reverence him as being my judge. But also the verses of Scripture seem to indicate I need to reverence him because he is my Savior. Right? He said, You're not, you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. He said, but you have been redeemed with the precious blood. Huh? Amen. You have been redeemed. The word redeemed means that you, 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 there's a ransom paid uh, in order to free someone. You know, they're a slave or something. A ransom paid or someone that's held you know, as a hostage. A ransom paid in order to free someone. Now, this is interesting to me. But in this culture, Greek and Roman culture, uh, there were slaves, of course. Slaves could take money. This is just kind of weird, really. Slaves could take some of their own money, deposit in the treasury of a god or goddess. Whenever I say a god, I'm not talking about the god. Deposit it in the treasury of a god or goddess. And then that, that temple could go to their master and pay, pay for the slave, minus commission, of course, pay for the slave. And then it looked as though that a god or goddess of whatever temple had bought the slave with money but the underside of that is this it's money that came from the slave himself but this verse has taken all of that culture in mind saying you were you were not you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold for that matter it wasn't money that you gave to a temple and then the temple paid for you as though you paid for your own release said, no, 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 this was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, what we are redeemed from. Listen, look what we're redeemed from. You are redeemed from your vain conversation, your vain lifestyle, your vain conduct, those former lusts. You were redeemed from all of that. 
Paul, Peter even calls it here the, 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 the traditional life. He calls that traditional life or that former life. He calls that vain. When you talk about vain, read Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, right? It's, it's vanity and vexation of the spirit. He uses the word vain so much in Ecclesiastes. And it's, it basically means this, useless and empty. You were redeemed from your empty, useless lifestyle you used to live. Amen. It was the tradition of your fathers. You know what that means? It, it, was, it was the society. It was the world at large. That, that's, that's, you were reared and raised in the society that, and its culture that has its bearings upon you, and you live life according to that until redemption day. And when redemption day comes, you are redeemed, you are ransomed, you are bought, you are set free from that empty, useless lifestyle that you've known from childhood of being born into a world of sin. You're redeemed from all that. Let me ask you a question real quick. Why is it then, if we're going to live like he's our Savior, Brother Terry, why is it, if he redeemed us from that, why would we want to fashion to the former lust? Huh? If that's what he brought us out of, why would we want to try to get back into it? If he called it useless and empty, why would we want to even give it a, any attention? Look at the contrast here. Look at the contrast. He said the corruptible things, right? Corruptible things. Silver, go. Coins used for, you know, ransoming or, or, or redeeming slaves. Corruptible things. But then you take that and you contrast it then with this. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which ultimately was the legitimate purchase price. He purchased us. He purchased the church with his own blood. Not somebody else's blood, his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. So on one hand, you have something that is corruptible. And on the other hand, you have something that is incorruptible because it portrays him as being the lamb without spot and without blemish. He said years ago, it may have been the corruptible things that redeemed you, but the incorruptible has redeemed you now without spot and without blemish now here's the awesome thing In, incorruptible blood has come and set you on a path of holiness you had a corruptible life but incorruptible blood now sets you on an incorruptible path to be destined as we learned in weeks gone by to a heaven that is not defiled and incorruptible reserved for you as long as you keep marching in that direction. Someone say amen. So it took Jesus' life to redeem our old, vain, useless, empty way of life. And yet, here's the, here's the thing that blows my mind. It blows my loins of my mind. <laughs> he redeemed us from the old, vain way of life. And yet there are times we continue to live just like we used to live. The things that we were involved in, the tradition of our fathers, that vain corruptible way, the things that we were involved in required the life of a perfect man to free us from them and their consequences. And so I ask us the question, if that is true, which it is, why do we attempt to live like what Christ's blood redeemed us from. It's almost like a slap in the face, isn't it, for God? But it is the repeated story in Scripture. You go back to the Old Testament, it's the story of Egypt all again, and Israelites coming out of Egypt in reality. On the night of the Passover, it took lamb's blood upon the lintel on the doorpost to help get Israel out of Egypt. And yet the very thing that they were freed from, not many days in their travels, what are they talking about? Oh, I long for Egypt. Did we not have better houses in Egypt? Oh, what about the leeks and the onions and such of Egypt, the food? <laughs> there was a slaughtering of lambs. Blood on doorposts. They have got you out. You, he came because he heard the cry wanting deliverance. That's Bible. He got you out of there. And now you're saying, oh, to go back. <laughs> we could just save a lot of livestock, you know, if we just got this all settled before we ever came to get you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look at, look at Exodus 11 and verse 1. Old Testament. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh, talking about the death of the firstborn, and upon Egypt. Afterwards, look at it. He's speaking to Pharaoh in Egypt. He will let you go. Hence, when he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out. Hence, all together. So here we have it. So whenever this all happens, he's going to let you go. Boom. Thrust you out. Yay, deliverance day. Ah, you know, new life, leaving the vain, useless, empty slime pits of Egypt. All this labor, rigors of trying to make brick without straw. I'm going to the promised land. Hee, here we go. And then we read in Exodus 14, just a few chapters later in verse number 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he, that is Pharaoh, pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand whenever they left. Verse 9, but the Egyptians, and I'm just reading the first little phrase up there, but the Egyptians pursued after them. Here's the reality. Here's the fact, folks. Amen. Lights going off right now, flashing. Here's the fact. Just because Egypt and Pharaoh has let you go, just because they have thrust you out, is no indication that they won't turn around and attempt to chase you and pursue you. Do you hear what I'm saying? They said, well, they're going to be thrust out. They're going to be let go. And just a little while, they're putting a cloud of dust behind their feet, chasing after what they just let go. Amen. That's the reason why you got to keep your mind girded. That's the reason why you got to be sober. That's the reason why you, you cannot fashion yourself to the former lust because he might have let you go, but he no sooner lets you go that he's coming down your trail again to pursue you and chase you. He's trying to take you back to Egypt, but you got to keep your mind right. Be sober, not fashion yourself to keep the hope the expected hope until the end. There isn't a place in the world. You can read it in Ephesians. There's not a place in the word, world where these three things, the devil, the flesh, and the world, are no longer issues for you. Those three things are still at play in all of our lives. The devil, our flesh, and world. When I speak of world, worldliness. Look what the Bible says of Exodus 14. The Lord saved Israel. This is where they crossed over the Red Sea. The Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's right. They pursued them right up to the Red Sea. They're blocked in. They're pursuing. There's that cloud there. It's light on the Israelite side. It's dark on the Egyptian side. Right? The rod goes up. Moses puts his hand out. They was able to go. The Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, the Bible says in Exodus 14.30. Here's the thing. There are days. Saved Israel that day. Listen to me. There are days. There are moments that God saves us out of the hand of the Egyptians. If I can say it like this, there are moments that God alleviates the oppressiveness of the chase and the pursuit of the adversary on us in many instances. And listen to me. And I find that many times when he alleviates some of that oppressiveness of the enemy chasing me and trying to pursue me is also correlates then with me being obedient to him. Why do you say that, Brother McGee? Took care of the army in the Red Sea. But the reason why the army is in the Red Sea is whenever Moses instructed the Lord, told Israel, go forward. Israel went forward and passed through the Red Sea. And correlating with their obedience was also the lifting of the oppressive hand of the Egyptians upon them in correlation to their obedience. Why? Because they were living like he was their father, their judge, and their savior. Whew. Oh, Lord. We didn't do it. I got an hour. I'll stop at an hour. I got, I got, I got six minutes. I can do this. I do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So we should pass our time here below in reverence. In reverence to him. Why? Well, his birth, great. Because his birth, his death, burial, and resurrection, the scripture says, was foreordained or was ordained before. This is great. It was all ordained before we needed them. His birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection were all ordained before we needed them. Right? That's what the scripture says. They were foreordained. So all this happened before we needed them. But they were carried out. They were initialized because we did need them. Whew. So that, what does that mean? That means all people from that point of time 
in Scripture, of resurrection and forward. Now all people may benefit by them. Verse 21. This is where we close. All right. Closely. If I read verse 21, who? Speaking of us. Last time's for you. Who? By him. Him. Jesus Christ do, do believe in God. You, because of Jesus Christ, you believe in God because of Jesus Christ. That raised him up. That God that raised up Christ from the dead. That God that gave him glory. That your faith and hope might be in God. So we have Jesus Christ come. We have the death, burial, and the resurrection. But all of this purpose was so that people ultimately would believe in God. Hmm? The Bible even says that we come to God through Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ sparked belief, if I can say it like that. Jesus Christ sparked belief in God from all of the people. This is something I have relayed to you before, but I'm going to relate to you again. How is this so? That Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, belief was put in God, that God that raised him up. How is that? Isaiah prophesied of a day. Remember this. Isaiah prophesied of a day when God would come. It's a good little few verses here to underline in your Bible. Isaiah 34 and verse number 4. Isaiah prophesied of a day that God would come. He said, say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. God with a recompense he will come and save you. Then, if I say then, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, streams in the desert. He said, your God will come. He's coming today in the future, he will come. And when he comes, blind eyes shall be opened. The mute is going to speak again. When he comes, the lame's going to be healed and he's going to be leaping around. When he comes, the deaf ear is going to be unstopped and he's going to hear again. When you see these things, you can know that your God has come among you. We've come to New Testament scripture and we start reading through the gospels. Jesus Christ opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus Christ opened the deaf ears. Jesus Christ healed the lame man. Jesus Christ opened the mute's mouth so he could speak again. Amen. Jesus Christ, even the angel said to Joseph, Amen, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What's happening? Eyes being open, ears being open, legs being able to walk. What's going on? Isaiah said these things would happen when your God would come. But this is the man Christ Jesus. Oh, it might be the man Christ Jesus, but that is God in Christ. Your God is come. Hallelujah. And because of Christ, it sparked belief then in God. Oh, yeah. It sparked belief in God. And we have hope and we have faith because of him. Your God has come. I end with this verse. If you'll stand with me. 1 John 2, 23. The Bible states this very plainly. Whoever denieth the Son, Christ Jesus, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son... Have the Father also. What's that mean? If you deny Christ, you don't have God because God was in Christ. But you can't deny God and accept Christ as well because they are, they are one. They are one. So belief in God can be sparked by Christ because his death, burial, and resurrection, yes, and also by the signs and the miracles and the wonders that was done by him that Isaiah said, that will be an indication that your God is among you. Amen. And so, again, as we leave this place for the rest of this week and weeks to come, I admonish all of us, live like he's your father. That means we're obedient. Live like he's your judge. <laughs> Sometimes, see, we, we live these lives like in separate compartments from each other. We live like he's my savior. Oh, he saved me from sin. Hallelujah. And we forget the same save, the same one that saved us is going to be the one that judges at judgment day. 
So don't just live like he's your savior. Live like he's your judge. Live like he's your father. And let me tell you, if you, do, if you live like he is, those, those roles and functions in your life, you have a hope till the end, until the revelation of Jesus Christ, till the rapture of the church, guaranteed according to God's word. Amen. One hour. Let's bow our heads tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, O oh God, tonight for your word. God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.